Hey, welcome to Conversations with my dear friend, Jeff Conway. My name is Susan. This is A Different Kind of Walk. Hello. Hello. Good morning. You're being stalked right now. I am being stalked right now. <laughs> Can you hear him scratching? On the collar, it sounds like a dick. Yeah. Okay. Hello, Mike. Hi. How are you doing? Good. I was just saying I have a, a cat that keeps uh, stalking me, but if he's too intrusive, I will kick him out. <laughs> Mike. Thank you for joining us today. Um, I'm in a medicine change area right now. I have a neuromuscular thing. So uh, Susan is used to my arms flying all over. Earlier, I had took some meds that were controlling that, but they also took my brain away, which I didn't realize until everybody told me. So, um, and you look like you're in a big room. Are you in New York? Nope, I'm in uh, today. I'm at home in New Jersey, and uh, it's not that big. It's our it's our office slash guest room okay. slash store things we have to return to Target. <laughs> Good. Nice to, meet, nice to meet you both. So before we start, Mike, you told me via email about your job title change to deputy standards editor, which is another promotion on your resume. I know. But when I hear the word deputy, all I can think of is a Wild West scene. So I'm letting you know that that's going to be the theme for this episode. <laughs> it's funny you say that because it was a promotion, but it a lot. some people ask me, well, your title sounds less impressive now. And I'm like, I don't really care about titles, but the job became interesting. I, well, the old job was interesting, but this to me was more interesting. Founded in 1851, the New York Times is one of the longest-running newspapers in the United States and the second-largest newspaper by circulation, including over 10 million digital subscribers as well. It employs around 5,800 people and daily covers domestic, national, and international news. Today, we get to spend some time with Mike Abrams, who is the Deputy Standards Editor at the New York Times. A journalist himself, Mike's job is to help make sure all journalism at the Times is held to the standard of their mission and values, which we'll discuss later. And that involves recruiting new editorial candidates, but also working with the standards team and making sure everyone across the whole company is on the same page. He also happens to be a graduate of Penn State. Go to any lions. So my first question is, were you a strict rule follower as a kid? Essentially, like how does one become interested in and qualified to direct the principles of one of the most extensive news producers in the world? A great question. Was I a rule follower? I think I was a rule follower as a kid, uh, probably because I was terrified of my mom yelling my whole name, Michael Stephen Abrams, why are your shoes sitting on the, wherever they were? Uh, yeah, I mean, I tend, tended to follow the rules. We had a really strict 
elementary school principal and when he would walk in the cafeteria everybody would get really quiet i don't think that happens anymore in schools um so yeah rule follower but you asked you know why what makes me qualified um to do the job that i do first of all it, it takes all of us to do that kind of job um there's a colleague of mine who likes to say that every editor at the New York Times is a standards editor or should be. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we believe in that. I think what I like to think of is my job is to be a reader and to be anticipating questions that our readers and our audience might have and to help reporters and editors think about those questions to step back from the work that they're deeply involved with to try to say, are we doing this the right way? Is there a better way? Is there something we're not thinking of? So that actually kind of brings me back to what you were saying earlier. Um, you, as your, you recently had a title change, and you just said that um, the job has become even more interesting now. What has changed? Well, the, the the previous job that I had was director of journalism practices and principles, which is kind of a fancy title, but I'm not a fancy person. Uh, I, what was complicated about it is I worked with a couple of different teams at the time. And, and while the work was really interesting and I got to work with great colleagues, I felt like it was getting me a little far away from the core journalism day to day, practicing it as opposed to helping people understand it. It's a, it's a nuance. Now, as part of the standards team fully, I get to help run the team and I get to really focus on the day to day. What are we doing well? What could we do better? How can we fix that on deadline, but then also what are some things we need to put into place to help in the long term improve what we're doing? I just turned in an editorial. What do you do with that? Sure. Uh, Well, a couple, just for the audience to understand, we have really two newsrooms at the New York Times. We have the core newsroom, which is news and features audio and video, and it's really not supposed to have opinion in it. That's one big newsroom, lots of people. Uh, And then we have an opinion newsroom, a separate newsroom runs separately, reports to the publisher, um, where editorials and columns are done and where there is opinion. And uh, the standards team can work with anybody across both of those newsrooms, but primarily what we do is work with the core newsroom. If you file that piece, that column, in all likelihood, a couple of editors in opinion would read that, work with you on that, help you sharpen your ideas, shape it, write the headline for it. If it has photographs or um, an illustration, they would work to make sure that all that's all aligned. And they will push that out into the world. And the standards team wouldn't really have a role in most cases. That's when things are going well. Okay. But let's say you try to push some hot buttons or uh, you want to include some vulgar language, or you want to really write about a a tough topic and we wanna make sure that it has all the nuance and care that it needs, that editor for you might reach out to the standards team and say, hey, can you give this a read? We'd just like another perspective or we're stuck on this wording here, can we do this? And in that case, someone on the standards team, there there are 10 of us, would give that a read and um, offer some questions or some thoughts or say, well, we we generally do this in this case, or we generally do that. Um, it's usually not an edict. We'll usually just suggest what we've done in the past and offer guidance. And then the editor and the writer will go back and consider that. 
in rare cases where there's a disagreement, it might be escalated up the chain for someone real, really at the top to make a final decision. Okay. So it sounds like it's more with others as opposed to to others. Yes, definitely. We like to focus on collaborative work, uh, but we do benefit from the perception that we have authority and power, um, whether we do or don't. Um, that perception can be helpful. So if we send out weekly memos or uh, answer a question, there's the perception that it carries the full force and weight of leadership, whether it does or doesn't is for another day to decide. Mm -hmm. So on a similar note, via their website, the values of the New York Times are listed as independence or impartiality, integrity, curiosity, respect, collaboration, and excellence. How do you actually hold people to those values? And does it, I guess, does it get awkward when you're like, mm, this thing you just wrote isn't really respectful or it doesn't, you know, those sorts of things? The good thing is we all know the values um, and it's part of hiring. It's part of orientation and onboarding. It's something we talk about a lot um, and we live and breathe them. So most of the time, people are within the lines of those things. And if you think about those values, mm -hmm. I mean, if we all lived in the world by those values, it would be a better place, right? Amen, um, yeah. So that to me is the easy part. The hard part is where you get into situations where people in the world who are interviewing want the coverage to reflect the world as they wish it to be and not the world that we have. And we really deeply believe that it's our job to cover the world as it is, including all the hopes and dreams that people have, but also some of those hopes and dreams that you have aren't the same as your neighbors. Uh, and that gets messy. And so that issue of independence comes up a lot. Sometimes we have to be able to hold the idea in our heads that we're publishing something that could make me personally or you personally really upset because it's reflecting a part of the world and we feel like it's a better world if we have all that information and we can deal with that openly rather than sort of sweep it under the rug and pretend it doesn't exist. And, and that can be uncomfortable for colleagues at work when they're feeling really passionately about an issue and they're, well, why are we quoting this person who's done X, Y, and Z terrible thing? Why are we giving them a platform? And we would say, well, that's not giving them a platform. They're, they're voting on this matter in Congress and um, we want our readers to know this is where they stand on it and let readers decide whether that person should be in Congress or should make that vote. Yeah, that brings me to two of my next questions, actually. So I'm going to I think I'm going to skip one and come back to it later, maybe. But um, the mission statement at New York Times is we seek the truth and help people understand the world. But in working with people, I often find that there's this assumption that truth is objective, that there is one truth and everything else is a lie. That's my idea of objective. That there's one truth and nothing else can be that truth. Um, but I'm sure you've also heard the phrase, the truth is in the eye of the beholder. And so how do you navigate topics that are divisive and carry a wide range of opinions while still holding to the idea that we seek the truth. Right. It's, um, I, I do think the truth is in the eye of the beholder, um, but I do think there are some truths that are um, more true. 
Uh, for instance, there are a lot of people right now who believe that the last presidential election was stolen. But we hold up from solid reporting and many court cases that the election was not stolen, that um, President Biden was elected. And um, so there, we could, ag- we could agree that, that that truth is in the eye of the beholder. In fact, there were people who stormed the Capitol suggesting otherwise. But we know who the president is and we operate from a position of, okay, there's been no credible evidence that the election was stolen. Um, I would say it goes back to process. Um, who is making decisions in society? How are they making decisions? What context do we need to provide readers when someone who's making decisions might be falsifying information, sharing something that's clouding other people's decisions and judgment? I think our role there is to, as best we can, do three-dimensional, 360-degree interviews, pursuit of information, data, facts. Go back and check it. There's an old saying in journalism, if your mother tells you she loves you, check it out. I think we have to operate that way. And it sounds, you know, kind of like we're misanthropes or something. But no, it's just about the idea that um, don't just take what somebody says, try to find the evidence and connect the dots for them. It's really hard to do that work. But I am also of the belief, and I was taught this in college, that you put the ideas out there and you let the audience, the readers decide for themselves where they think truth is. And right now in our society, that's that's become somewhat of a battle. There's, it's really polarized and it's hard to see a way through. But I, I don't think it's our job to decide for our readers. Yeah, I agree. And I, I get that. There's also, well, that leads to my other question. And kind of what I'm thinking of is, depending on when you grew up, when you look at the internet, you either think like everything on the internet is true or you're highly skeptical of everything. And so, I mean, I feel like I know some older people in my family probably who like, well, it was on the internet. So obviously you can trust it. Um, But someone like me who like, I put things on the internet. (laughs) Like I know that's not necessarily objective and 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 I could be just making things up um and so that leads me to the question just like that journalism doesn't only inform it also influences it it does have a lot of influence just just putting something in there can have a lot of influence um and as such your job is directly related to how a lot of people end up thinking about lots of things, whether it's other countries or how to invest your money or who you should vote for or how we perceive just people who are different than us. So that feels like a huge responsibility. And I'm kind of curious just for you emotionally, actually, just like, how do you deal with that? Do you feel like you're responsible for people's opinions, or are you able to self-differentiate in that way? Um, you can't You can't think about that all the time. It's be a lot of existential dread if you, you were to do that, but it's why we have a set of ethical guidelines. It's why we say if we knowingly 
publish, if we knowingly think we're going to publish something inaccurate, we should stop and not publish that. We should go back and do more work. And it's also why we say, if you call us and say, hey, this was wrong in this article, it's our obligation to go back, re-report that, find out if we were wrong and correct the record if we were. We publish something like 5,000 corrections a year. On the one hand, that's really embarrassing. That's 5,000 blows to our credibility. On the other hand, that's a tremendous consistent statement that we want to earn your trust, that when we are wrong, we will acknowledge it openly, fix the article and correct it. And to me, they both, they go hand in hand and you want that number to go down. Mm -hmm. um, it generally doesn't. Uh, part of that's because you're, we're constantly publishing more and more. I think every week we publish more than the equivalent of the complete works of Shakespeare. Um, yeah. Shakespeare made a mistake or two in his time, um, although I haven't been told of any. Uh, at least <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I think the to me, you put the processes in place, careful editing, vetting of facts, sharing context, correcting the record when we don't. And that to me takes away some of the dread of feeling like you know, oh my gosh, how are we ever going to get this right? And look what happens if we put this information in the world and somebody does a terrible thing. So I like that you have curiosity as one of those core values. Um, if you look in my library, I have George W. Bush book next to Hillary Clinton because I, and people get confused when they look in my library, but for me, it's curiosity. So uh, I suppose that, I mean, it's an interesting word to put in there, but I, I think it's kind of the opposite of skeptical. How do you get that core value out to more readers? Are there ways you're developing that curiosity? That's a great question. One of the great things about the old print paper, which we sort of lose on the internet, is the serendipity of turning the page and seeing something that surprised you. It's a little harder to find those surprises when you're clicking at one article at a time. But I think the biggest thing is, can we bring a sense of wonder to our readers every day? Whether it's a game that they're playing. I don't know if you play Wordle mm -hmm. or Spelling Bee, but or a great recipe that you've never heard of from a part of the world that previously would have been unthinkable for someone in New Jersey or Pennsylvania or Vietnam to know about another part of the world. So connecting people with ideas and tastes and flavors or introducing them to someone behind the scenes in a profile, uh, maybe during Oscar season, who was the person who wrote this story that you just saw in the name on the credits roll by and why do they matter? Um, and, and I think, so to me, it's about surprising them. And I also think it's about challenging them. If we aren't curious about the world, if everything's settled, um, that's, that's a, to me, a, a dull place. And I think very few things are settled. We operate at the place where facts and thoughts are contested and that's messy. And uh, that's what education and debate and religion and all of it's about. And if we had all the answers, we'd just close up and all go to the beach or something, I guess.
my family lives in the Philadelphia area. And literally a couple days ago, my husband said this. The best thing is watching the Eagles win a game. The second best thing is watching the Cowboys lose a game. So I'm curious whether it is like that among news sources. Like our our news sources like sports teams where your team is great and always reports objective truth, but the other team is the worst and they're just sending out lies and propaganda all the time. Um, I feel like readers do that, but I'm curious whether other journalists actually, like, do you have empathy for your competitors or, or not? A great question. Uh, first of all, uh, we're in the Eagles household here, so I share your husband. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, in fact, you, there was a there was a day with the playoffs when before the Eagles had lost, the Cowboys lost, and you had like twenty four hours of happiness in the Philadelphia. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, my husband also went to Penn State, which is where you went, and so yes, we have that that going on in our house as well. Like I, I'm from Nebraska, so like you know, Nebraska football is a big deal. Um, well, and, it used to be. Well, no, okay. I'm <laughs> not saying out, right? I'm not saying they're good. <laughs> I'm just saying that they're the only thing that Nebraska has. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so yeah, we we definitely root for Penn State unless they're playing Nebraska, and then I have to uh, represent. But, but yeah, he, my husband gets stressed watching those football games, and I'm like, it's just a like it's a football game, yeah. and I don't understand. So, Mike, were you around Penn State around 1996? I've been. Uh, I grew up in State College as well. So I okay. I'm, so I'm, when I'm Oregon played Penn State in the Rose Bowl in 1996, I think 90. It was after the 94 season, so it would have been January 95. 95. Okay. Yep. So. I'm an Oregon duck, but I was living in the Philadelphia area. That was my first church. And then I moved around and we were what, you know, there were no Oregon ducks here. And that was before Phil Knight uh, gave them a new uniform, every <laughs> game to play and all the different combinations they had. So it was all Penn state people and me. And I walked in the house and they asked, do you like that smell? And, you know, it was something, it was barbecue or something, but it was roast duck that they served before the game. <laughs> and we played a good quarter and a half before Penn State totally took us over then. <laughs> As I recall that game, it was like the first play of the game. I think Penn State took it to the house, I think. Well, you know, we still played that quarter and half of the next quarter. I, and I will answer, Susan, I will answer your question in a minute, but one more memory of this. Uh, I have a good friend who's a writer in California, and we lived uh, a block away from them in State College, and Penn State won the national championship after the 86 season. They had played the Miami Hurricanes and the Fiesta Bowl. It was called the Game of the Century at the time. Jimmy Johnson, young Jimmy Johnson, was the coach of Miami. It was a very false narrative. If you want to think about bad mm. media coverage. Penn State choir boys wearing their coat and ties, Miami players showing up in like army fatigues. And they're the, there were a lot of, some of it was probably racist at the time, I think. But um, if you go back and look at what 
the reality of those teams. There were just as many good and bad guys on each of those teams, but it was that narrative. But we sat in certain seats watching that game that day because Penn State was winning at certain points. And when they would fall behind, we'd change seats. And I will still remember just like sitting on this vinyl yellow cushion and having like sweating into it, worried about that game. And then it's snowing after that. We went out and ran around in our t-shirts and we're so excited after that. But it's just those informative superstitions and memories, I think, are why we sit there and grit our teeth when our teams are losing now. But yeah, <laughs> to answer your question, um, I do have empathy for other journalists, particularly in an era where there are many people losing jobs. Many of my friends from college have lost jobs in this industry. Uh, it's a tough racket. You know, you used to be able to go to a local TV station or a local newspaper, learn the trade, have to deal with your readers right there. They come into the office and want to talk to you. And you, you sort of learn and make mistakes, develop and go to a bigger place. And then hopefully you can uh, maybe cover national or international affairs. Uh, it's not really like that anymore. Mm-hmm. And so I have a lot of empathy on that level. Uh, I would say there are different kinds of organizations. I'm skeptical, deeply skeptical of journalism organizations that seem like they're maybe out to get the times. Uh, mm-hmm. And there are some, you can search for headlines. The New York, if the New York Times is in a headline and it's not a media publication, you kind of have to wonder, well, what are they, what are they doing? It might be from the left or it might be from the right, but they're trying to influence what readers think of us and what we do. And I'm skeptical of that. Um, I've been quoted in some of those articles and I find that all the things people say about, you know, us mm-hmm. can be true. You know, well, wait a minute, you only took half of my quote and you didn't, get it right. Um, Yeah, those are some of the words I said, but that's not what I meant. So I I sympathize with readers in that respect, that what are the means and the ends of the person writing the article? Um, But there are generally organizations that I think approach the news the way that we try to, which is with fairness and transparency, whether we make mistakes or not. So I would say, you know, Bloomberg, the Washington Post um, are are two examples. CNN, I think, depending on the the show, but the new the core news of what they try to do. Um, so I think there's a healthy competition there and a respect. And sometimes we'll talk to leaders of those organizations. What what are you doing with your style book, or what? How do you deal with this issue? And we hire from mm-hmm. each other. We poach each other's talent. <laughs> and then there are other places that we just think eh, that's not really what we're about. Um, there's a lot of advocacy journalism now. And that's fine. And I think that's a good thing for the world, but that's not what we practice. And so in that respect, I just think of it as a different thing, not necessarily something to have empathy or or jealousy about, just it's a different thing. It would be like the milk saying, I don't like eggs. I mean, mm-hmm. they're just near each other on the shelves, but they really aren't doing anything to affect one another. Mm-hmm. Jeff and I got to do an interview a while back with Daniel Nayiri, who was a refugee from Iran when he was a child. Um, And he's a writer and a publisher now. We had this lovely conversation about how different cultures think about ideas of truth and story and what makes a story true. So I'm just kind of curious for you, what are the markers that make a story true? On some level, it feels like a gut reaction to it. Um, how do readers who are commenting 
react to it. A, a lot of times, uh, like on a take a take a feed, we have something called the Great Read. It's a story chosen each day, and it's on our home screen. And it's something that we view as just a well-told story. And often you'll see the comments, hey, thank you, New York Times, for this. Or this story touched me in a way that was really meaningful. And then they'll share their own story. And I feel like when you see people reacting to stories that way, that they they feel connected to the people in the story or to the subject, that's one kind of truth. I also think another kind of truth is when you report something that people didn't know and they just find it fascinating. Another example of that is, uh, you know, many of our big cities are struggling right now with housing problems. People are unhoused, office buildings are empty because workers haven't fully returned and cities are like, well, what can we do with this space? Can we convert it to apartments? Mm-hmm. And we did a a story that assessed, well, how do you convert an office building to apartments? Can you do that? And it it showed how you would do that. And it talked about the expense and how long it would take. And it was just interesting from an engineering and architectural standpoint, but also from a societal standpoint that this is a long-term mess mm-hmm. that will cost a lot and take a lot. And that may not ultimately be the solution to somebody who tonight is going to be out in the cold sleeping on the street and so but the reaction from people wasn't that's not true or that's not the way the world is it was just the grappling with this real challenge and and people were interested in it to me that's another kind of sign that we've done something interesting that that we put an idea out there in the world that that maybe people took for granted or didn't know how to deal with gave them an idea for one possible solution and it may prompt other ideas in their own minds Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like one thing that I read a long time ago that I had that reaction to was like some cities have put in public showers in the subway system. And I'm sure there are probably different negatives to that. But when I first heard it, I was just like, that's brilliant. Like, that is so great. I don't And some of that's because I've worked with the homeless population where I live. And sometimes people talk about the homeless saying, why don't they just get a job or he's homeless, but apparently he can afford a cell phone. But the reality is that you literally cannot fill out a job application unless you have a phone number and a mailing address. And then still no one's going to hire you to do a job if you're unwashed and make the people around you feel uncomfortable. These are just the practical things that people who haven't experienced homelessness don't always realize. That, that's interesting too, because a lot of people think of home, like a homeless person as a fixed condition and it's, it's a, they're on a line. I mean, maybe they had that phone when they had a job and a home and right. now they don't. So for a lot of people, it's, as you know, it's, it's hopefully a temporary situation, not always, but yeah. Do you have much of a religious background? Um, I was raised Jewish. Um, my, I had a bar mitzvah and, uh, my religious experience went pretty far downhill pretty quickly after that. Um, I did go to a, a summer camp for several years, uh, that was like sports and lots of, it was a Jewish summer camp in the Poconos, loved it, had a lot of great friends there, had a great experience growing up, but I did find the, um, two days a week after school, Hebrew school lessons and Sunday school to be a lot of classroom time and I was kind of tired of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I just, 
wanted to go out into the world and sort of ask my own questions and learn about other religions and learn about philosophy. And, and the more I have done that, the further away from religion I've gone. We do keep some religious customs. You know, we, we enjoy um, laying the Hanukkah candles and some of the food and, um, you know, we have Jewish family members and friends. So there's, there are some shared customs, but not the rituals and not the regular going to synagogue. Mm -hmm. Does that affect your relationship with your family? Um, I do sense my my um, paternal grandfather was pretty religious, and on his and his brother was a Jewish leader in Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. I suspect when they were alive, they might have kind of like quietly rolled their eyes at this new generation that wasn't all that interested in religion. But you know when. I think when I, we were, when I was dating my wife, she's, she's also Jewish, but also sort of like what we would call secular Jewish the way I am. Um, I, I remember my dad been saying, oh, when they hadn't met her, saying, oh, is, is she Jewish? So clearly there was some interest in that. And, oh, the grandkids will be Jewish and how, how are you going to raise them? So I think there was some interest, but they, they let us live our lives and never really said anything other than that. So you brought something up. I'm a preacher. I have to go there um, to pass your ordination exams. You have to learn Greek and Hebrew. So I had to learn all those Hebrew words that all sound exactly the same. And I learned by hearing it was a nightmare. Um, uh, but I love the history of the Old Testament. I've been to Israel probably seven times. So I'm I'm wandering around this issue, and I don't know if you want to touch it or not. Um, things shouldn't surprise me, but they continue to surprise me at times. And that we're dealing with Jewish hate crimes and the complexity of what's happening in Israel-Palestine. What has been your experience in the midst of that Personally, you're walking um, in a different place, but professionally, is that that's digging for the truth also? And I, I just have a hard time believing that people can be so solidified in their view. It saddens me that that that's going on. Is there a question in there? That's a <laughs> is there a question? Well, that solidified in their view is true. I mean, I think we see this is contested territory. Uh, when we write an article that talks about the terrible conditions in a hospital in Gaza, and we interview the mothers wailing over their children or the doctors who haven't slept or there's no food or the, there's bullet holes in the windows, it's the truth for these people. And we will hear from readers who are supporters of Israel and say that's you're you're ignoring why there are bullet holes there. You're ignoring whatever. There are just people who don't want to see that. The same as if we write about terrible crimes that were committed on October 7th in Israel, the people will defend the the reason for the attack or the ongoing hostility or say, well, if you're an occupied people, then anything goes. And what we have found is that. There is never a time where someone who thinks one thing for one side of this really honestly stops and has deep empathy for mm. their opponent. And it's a 
we're not going to solve this tomorrow. And this wasn't solved 50 years ago or 100 years ago. It's scary to me, though, as a as someone who was raised Jewish, that Jews can be, what, a couple of percent of the people in the United States and represent the victims of 60 or 70 percent of hate right. crimes. There's, there's something there that's alarming to me. And I, um, like a lot of stereotypes, part of the problem is that that like they start with some thing that people believe and see as truth. So if you believe that um, Jewish people have power in media and banking and you see a couple of examples of that, then it can become very easy to scapegoat someone for your own lack of money or your own lack of voice. And I think the problem is we have to be able to, un I don't know how to do this. We have to be able to untangle the exaggeration of the anecdotal truths that we see with the reality and try to get beyond the labels that we attach to each other and figure out a way to coexist. And I'm just not sure how we're going to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that, yes, that is so challenging and sad to me. So my curiosity took me places. Um, so I went to the white supremacist March. I went to the Parkland kids uh, March in Washington that, wasn't all the Parkland kids, you, I forget, but it was certainly uh, against um, gun violence and world stuff also. I wanted to see what was happening in different parts. So into Afghanistan and, and into Kenya and different places. Uh, but me being there in Israel really helped the preaching um, that I could say, this is what I saw. Um, do you have a lot of people uh, around the world, employees just for New York Times? Or how do you get that boots on the ground stuff, I guess, is what I'm asking. We do. I think our, our news gathering operation is close to 2,000 people. Many of them are in New York, but we have editing hubs also in London and Seoul. So we're around the clock. And we have dozens of bureaus around the world, including in the Middle East. Right now, it's really difficult to do reporting in Gaza, but we have been able to go in there pretty much, I think, everywhere on Earth we've sent people or have people. And it's never enough, but it's better than not being there. Uh, it used to be that all the major publications had people in these places. Mm -hmm. uh, but it also used to be that every publication had somebody sitting at your city council meeting or your mm -hmm. school board meeting, and that's not the case anymore. And uh, I like to think that we're all better off if someone is sitting at that meeting watching, writing about it. I mean, it matters whether there's a traffic light put down the block where someone was hit by a car or how much your taxes are going up and why. And if we're not there to write about that, to witness that, to be a part of that conversation, to me, those conversations then happen in the dark and all it takes is one bad person in one place to do something bad in the dark. Yeah.
Um, my last question feels like kind of a left turn, but how has artificial intelligence started to impact your job and the world of journalism as you see it? Um, do you have pros and cons? I think we should all be really alert to this. The internet's being devoured by this information right now. And then it starts to eat itself and spit itself back out, which is kind of a twister for your brain to think about. But um, are the images and videos you're looking at real or are they artificially generated? I mean, I think we should be asking that all of the time now. We ran a quiz last week where we had lots of images. I think there were 10 images of people and you were supposed to guess which one was artificial intelligence and which one was real. I think I got mm -hmm. seven out of the 10 right. Mm -hmm. And I've been studying this. Yeah, I'm not an engineer, but I've been studying this for the tells and it's really hard to determine. Mm -hmm. um, practically speaking, you know, we're thinking a lot about this. Are there ways to harness this technology to help us do our jobs? Are there danger areas, the, the do not touch areas that we think will make our work worse or make people not trust us? That's certainly the case. So I think we're studying both of those and we're watching to see how others use these. I think we would not do, and we do not want to do the kind of thing that some publications have done where they just generate articles. They just tell, have AI make up a reporter's name and face an article and it spits it out. We're not doing that. Um, we want to lean into the human people who are in places doing things. And um, that said, there's tremendous ability to become a more accessible publication at scale. An example would be um, if you think about, you know, if you have an Alexa device in your house or you use Siri on your phone, you know, you can ask it a question and get an answer that sounds sort of human-like. And you let's say you you can't read an article, but you want to listen to it. There might be an opportunity to use that technology to, to give an audio version of every article mm -hmm. uh, on our site so that either you love listening or you can't read it. And so it mm -hmm. gives you an accessible way to, to consume that news. Um, I think search is interesting. You know, could, could I one day go to a website and say, hey, tell me the 10, give me summaries of the 10 stories you've reported that are the most important in the past 24 hours. And it could maybe one day do that with accuracy. Um, I don't know that we're there at the moment, but I think we would be foolish if we weren't studying these things. But I also firmly believe we need to have the humans doing the work and reviewing the work. And we need to be telling our readership, here's where we're using this technology. Here's where we won't mm -hmm. uh, so that people can, can make a smart judgment on their own. I, I do, I do think it, last thing I'll say, I do think it's interesting that some of the experts on this technology have deep fears about it, that it can become smarter than us and could learn how to turn the switch back on if we turn the switch off. And I think we'd be wise to listen to them and to not overreact to them, but to put safeguards in place and to go a little slower than we think we need to go. Because if we rush into it, we might regret it in the end. Yeah, I agree. This isn't quite the same thing, but I do a lot of graphic design. And so I have become really good at using Photoshop to the point where I don't, I don't want to toot my own horn, but I'm like no one could tell like i just changed this and there's no way anyone could tell and between that and i don't know if you watch movies all that much but um 
you know, like now they have voice technology where they can copy someone's voice and you don't even have to have the actor show up. And that is terrifying. So it's like I could I could create a photo of someone saying something or doing something. We could literally record a copy of them saying it. Like you could easily frame someone for anything. And that is terrifying. I think the internet's already awash with this. I mean, I think the other day there was a Taylor Swift. There were a spread of all these images on social media that were artificial intelligence generated. I mean, I think it's really dangerous. Talk about truth. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's true that those pictures existed, Mm -hmm. but they're not true pictures of her. And so um, what are we, what are we doing here? I, it's, uh, I have a meeting after this uh, about AI and uh, you know, how, what are some of the potential uses and what are some of the, the guardrails? I mean, this is something we've been talking about for a year. And, and, and if you go back, I think the studies of this, the people who really know what they're doing, this goes back to the forties, the I think. I mean, I think, and of course the Turing test saying that computers would advance, I'm going to get it wrong, but this goes, but you know, this is like the, the second world war. This stuff was being researched. So a lot of people think, oh, this came out of nowhere a year or two ago. I mean, there's a continuum here and, and, uh, and it's just accelerating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also, I'm a child of the eighties. So I always think of Terminator too. Like, I'm just like, that's what's yeah. going to happen. Yeah. I've never seen that. You won't be surprised. And Susan got a text before this began where I text her, I can't open the meeting again, which happens about two thirds of the time that she needs to resend the link for me to hit. So I have, I have no issues with AI because I'm just not on the computer at all. And yeah. Someday AI will be able, I'll just be able to call you on the phone and be like, Jeff's computer, turn on Zoom. Uh, <laughs> that would be a good part of AI, right? I got to tell you, I don't think Zoom always works. I mean, I I click it and things open and close and they don't always, I, so I can. Thank write. you. <laughs> nice. Okay, well, it is almost exactly 10 o'clock, and Mike, I want to let you go and respect your time. Thank you so much for making this a priority. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It was really a pleasure. Thank you so much. You have an important calling where you get to be a part of that group that encourages uh, good reporting from all sides and from all places. So I give thanks for you and celebrate that that you're doing that it's important kind of you to say i mean i think we could return that right back to you i mean i think searching for the truth and helping people understand what they're feeling and uh, and leading them that's a hard that's a hard job and to do that for as long as you did is um boy you must have some stories to tell thanks for joining us for a different kind of walk Until next time, live well.